Hi, I'm Dr. George Talaforis, and welcome to our special election series of Reasonable and Necessary. You'll hear what Australia's NDIS portfolio leaders have planned for our NDIS, and what a lineup: Linda Reynolds, Bill Shorten, and Jordan Still John. And in our final episode, we will bring together Australia's leading disability advocates to analyse everything that's been said. The questions I'm asking have come from you, sourced from advocacy organisations who have partnered with me to bring you this very important series. First up, the current Minister for the NDIS, Senator Linda Reynolds. Check it out. Hi Linda, welcome to the show. Hi George, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me. It's really good to have you. I'm, I'm very excited to uh, talk to you about your plans for the NDIS. Uh, if you're in charge of the NDIS after the next election, what will be your priorities? Well, George, thanks. It's a great question. It's something that I've been thinking a lot about, obviously. Uh, first of all, uh, we have to be re-elected and I have to be reappointed as the minister. But uh, if that does happen, uh, not only would I be very proud to continue on as the minister for the NDIS, but it's clear to me now that we need to continue uh, at a sustainable pace reform of the scheme, because obviously the last few years were all about bringing in 250,000 people from state, very different state and territory schemes, uh, and also to bring in nearly 250,000 people for the first time receiving disability supports, while at the same time setting up the NDIS, you know, the procedures and a really complex uh, social policy, which was somewhat constrained by the legislation. But now that we've got, you know, over half a million Australians uh, into the scheme, uh, the next one, two, three, four, five years is really, I think, about maturing the scheme. We've had a lot of reviews and, you know, most notably the Tune review, which made it very clear that we need to do uh, more reforms uh, with a really with a focus on participants. So. Uh, I was very glad that in the last, on the last sitting day of the last parliament, in fact, in the last few hours, we got, with the support of Labor and uh, you know, many of the crossbenchers, we got the first significant legislative reform uh, of the NDIS through. And I'm really proud of that because uh, that uh, implements into law the participant service guarantee. And I've heard from so many people uh, over the last 12 months that they want the scheme to be simpler, you know, more easy to understand, but also to be a much better participant experience sort of across the board. So to answer the question, uh, we, we have to now look at participants uh, and what their needs are. So I started, uh, so it's not only the participant service guarantee, but it's also um, making the scheme more accessible from people from cold communities, from First Nations uh, communities, but also uh, for people with intellectual and cognitive disabilities to make sure that the scheme really works for everybody. So there's a number of big areas. We need to do more work on uh, early childhood interventions 
uh, and you know, work out how we do that uh, more effectively. We've got reforms we still need to do on SDA, on SIL. So there's a lot of work to be done now to make sure that the scheme is a, is a better experience, but also uh, that we mature the processes. Will you raise any changes to eligibility or to how funding allocations are made? Well, George, there's a couple of couple of parts to that. Firstly, is that you know our c commitment has absolutely been on you know from the Morrison government to fully fund the scheme, and as you know, that's what we've done. So we've locked into the budget for the next four years 157 billion dollars to make sure that the scheme is is fully funded. Um, I think that uh, in the legislation, it, they got it right. Um, Labor Party, uh, along with our support, got it right that decision making should be done separately from politicians and that that's why there is uh, an independent process by the NDIA. There's also review processes uh, in place uh, separate from politicians. So I think it should still continue to be uh, independent of politicians on the day and decide on what is reasonable and necessary. Thank you, Linda. How concerned are you about the sustainability of the scheme? Well, George, I think that sustainability, I think that all, everybody should be concerned about the sustainability. And sustainability doesn't mean cuts. It's, sustainability really means that it is affordable into the long term. So we have made sure that for the next four years um, in the budget, that it is fully funded. But again, you know, it's important to remember that as the federal minister uh, responsible, I'm also accountable to Australian taxpayers. And we need to make sure that the money is being spent uh, for the purposes that the Australian taxpayers are investing in this scheme. So it's, it's not about cuts. It's actually now about making sure that the scheme uh, survives and sustains into, you know, for many generations to come. So where will you be looking for uh, cuts if you were to look for cuts? I absolutely am not looking for cuts. Uh, Ed, can I just say, this is one of the, the really mischievous messages that's gone out uh, by some, is there are no cuts. There, are, there have been no cuts to the scheme. In fact, we've put over $40 billion extra into the scheme over the next four years to make sure that the scheme is fully funded. So I'm absolutely not looking at cuts. And again, as a politician, I don't have any say in decision-making for people's plans, and I shouldn't, and nor should any politician. Let's look at workforce now. Workforce is a real concern. Um, yes. Particularly for uh, participants who rely on our workforce to uh, turn up to deliver services. What will you do to address the increase in the shortages in the workforce that we're seeing? Look, George, that's another really good question. And it's something that I've spent a lot of my time uh, focusing on. Um, because when you, when you think about this, we've done a pretty extraordinary thing with the NDIS um, together as a parliament and as a nation. Um, we've taken what was an $8 billion uh, industry uh, before the NDIS, and that was the total uh, 
investment in disability supports and services right across the nation by all states and territories and the Commonwealth Government. And again, sort of around about 250,000 Australians were receiving those sort of supports. Uh, now, you, know, you roll forward eight years and we now have half a million people who are funded uh, for disability supports. And as you and I both know, it's not it's not health support, it's not aged care support, it's not mental health support, because we have sectors to provide that support more generally. This is for disability support. So we've taken that $8 billion market and in the space of you know, less than eight years, have turned it into a 30 plus billion dollar a year market. And with 250,000 more people receiving disability supports, um, the workforce has had to grow um, really rapidly. So the workforce has grown rapidly and we've got you know hundreds thousands of more providers uh, large and small but that's still not enough. So what we've done in the last budget we've uh, invested nearly 250 million dollars into a care and support workforce because it's not just in the disability sector uh, we're providing more and more supports in the aged care sector and that's you know obviously we're an aging population as well and for veterans so we do really need to increase and find more people and to recruit them into the sector. Um, as you well know, we don't just want anybody. We want people who uh, want to be there and who are really suited to, to the caring profession. So we've got a very comprehensive uh, workforce plan that we delivered, as you would have seen, uh, for a five-year five -year workforce um, NDI specific workforce plans. So we're doing a lot of things, but ultimately we need to recruit more people uh, in as support workers, but also for allied health services as well, because we're now providing more people with those supports than ever before. I have a friend who uh, recently said to me that her, her support worker, who was one of her best support workers, um, had to leave the country um, because of visa issues and the fact that we don't currently have a visit program that, that supports the disability workforce. Do you think that there is a need to look at our, our visa uh, offers and uh, look at that as an option? I think we need to do two things, uh, George. One is we need to uh, create and will train and interest uh, more people into the profession here in Australia, which is why we launched the Life Changing Life uh, campaign, which has had success in a lot, quite a lot of success in actually bringing people uh, into the sector to have a look at the, the sector, how they can get trained and, you know, what are the opportunities. So we need to make it... Um, more attractive for people in Australia to want to go into uh, the care and support sector. But I think you're right. Um, and it's something that I had been discussing and I have been discussing with the Minister of Immigration and also the Minister for Foreign Affairs is now that uh, our borders are, are open again with, to the rest of the world, uh, how do we attract more people in? So it's getting the balance right between them both. That's right. I'd like to turn now to uh, an issue that's very, uh, close to my heart. I recently uh, did an interview with a woman who's been stuck in hospital for almost a year um, waiting for an NDIS plan. Uh, you know that there's a call um, for faster decisions around housing and support. 
How long do you think that there's this is in this sensitization? Look, I think I look. I absolutely agree that we need to reform processes at, to make sure that quick decisions are made faster. But also, I, I want to make sure that we're still making the right decisions. So um, we've had got the uh, PSG uh, now uh, in in legislation. So but that? I think oh, participant service guarantee. But so I had started a lot of work uh, with the NDI, NDIS about red tape uh, reduction and reform. So one of the things to help with that is in the legislation that was just passed so that people can have uh, much quicker variations to their, to their plans without having to go through a full plan review. So if, you know, if something happens uh, when someone's got a plan, you know, something unexpected happened, they can now go to the, uh, the NDIA and ask, ask for a quick plan variation to meet, uh, to meet their needs. So I think that, you know, that is one practical measure that we've implemented. Um, and so the NDIA, to their credit, have been reporting, even without it being legislated, uh, the participant service guarantee metrics. And they've been doing that uh, for pretty much as long as I've been the minister. And if you have a look at their quarterly reports, the majority uh, of those timeframes are being met. But I think there is no question that part of the reforms that we've got, to, the journey we've got to continue on with is how can we keep reducing those decision times down, but also making sure that people are getting the right plan and that the right decisions are being made. So it's a bit of a, a balance, but there is still definitely more work to be done on that. I'd like to turn to a really uh, serious issue and that's the issue of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of civil disabilities. Uh, what, what, what do you believe that governments need to be doing more of in this area? And I say governments because it's, it's both state, federal, it's at the local level as well. Look, all governments do have uh, responsibility for for this, um, but for the federal government, we introduced, you know, the, the coalition government, we introduced the commission because that hadn't been established um, by the, you know, the previous Labor government. So I think, look, the commission itself has a significant responsibility in this area. I think they've done a fantastic job because don't forget, they, they stood up from scratch uh, you know, just four years ago and created a new national um, regu regulatory framework because this was a sector and people, are for, I think, for quickly forget that before the Commission and before the NDIS, this was pretty much an unregulated sector. So providers were not used to being regulated or being held to account for how they um, looked after and cared for participants. So the commission, I think, is an important part of that process, but there are certainly uh, areas uh, of improvement. I was really proud to have been able to take through the Anne-Marie Smith bill, which did deal with a lot of the, the issues and the holes in the system that became very apparent from that unbelievably awful case and the way that Anne-Marie Smith was neglected and eventually died. Um, so, the Commission is an important part of that, but the Commission's responsible uh, not just for ensuring quality and safeguarding, 
but they're also important uh, stewards of the market itself because we've got to find a balance between ensuring that standards continue to improve in terms of you know safeguarding uh, participants and also providing really quality care options but we've also got to make sure that the market is viable um, that um, people can you know still want to and still earn a living uh, effectively in the sector so there's more work to be done for the commission and the new commission has certainly hit the commissioner has hit the ground running having a look at sort of the issues of registration and how we can strengthen quality and safeguards but how we can also make it uh, more effective for for the sector as well um, and you know again states and territories also have a have a responsibility because don't forget the the national disability uh, agency itself uh, is is administering an insurance scheme so states and territories also have a responsibility um, in terms of their own uh, areas of responsibility so not the criminal justice system but also uh, for guardianships and you know other sort of areas of responsibility so look it's, it's a shared responsibility george i was really shocked when i saw that the uh provider for um and respect who was actually a registered provider uh had had provider um was only fined thirteen thousand dollars surely that's not good enough well, George, I certainly don't want to um, comment on sort of any particular decision, but I think that there are certainly improvements that must keep uh, keep being done. I think a lot a lot of improvements will come. As you know, we set up the Royal Commission into the abuse, neglect, and exploitation of people with disability, and you know we're hearing some pretty shocking things being exposed through the Royal Commission that we established. So we've invested uh, in that Royal Commission um, half a billion dollars, and uh, we haven't been waiting for the final report. So we have been uh, constantly uh, looking at uh, the evidence that's going into the Royal Commission, and also, you know, what are some of the things that uh, we can we can do to improve. But certainly, after their final report, I think there is no doubt that you know the Australian Parliament and states and territory governments as well will have to look at what more we need to do uh, to improve the quality of service, but also the safeguarding. Yeah, I also think that um, when we look at you know, the issue of neglect, it's very, you know, it, it's everywhere. I mean, I even think that, um, you know, being stuck in hospital for a year to me feels like, you know, yeah. and, and, and neglect issue. Um, so just on, George, just on the, hosp just on the hospital yeah. issue, uh, you raised that before. Um, it is something that I have been at sort of all six meetings that I've had with state and territory ministers over the last just over 12 months at the issue of uh, IPRAC and, uh, you know, how we actually... What that means, uh, oh, young, young people, <laughs> yeah, yeah, young people in residential aged care. So uh, we've got people both in aged care and we've all that we need to actually 
for those who want to, to have you know another housing option and support option, how do we get and stop younger people going into inappropriately into aged care? But we've also got people in hospitals, as you said, who um, either are waiting um, for an NDIS housing decision, so SDA, or they're waiting for public housing. Um, it's something that I've been discussing extensively with state and territory ministers and also raising with the state and territory housing ministers because, uh, again, in our wonderful federation, it's a shared responsibility. So we've got some responsibility through uh, specialist disability accommodation for about 5% of NDIS participants. Um, and the states and territories uh, have a responsibility to provide uh, affordable um, and uh, accessible uh, public housing. So yeah. it's ni neither one of us can solve it alone and we have to keep working together to find a solution uh, for that. So with hospitals, again, it's a shared responsibility because uh, the NDIA doesn't all necessarily know that a participant is in a hospital if they're already a participant. Um, and each state and territory has very different uh, record keeping processes. Okay. So we're working with, and I've been working with states and territories to get a consistent approach to reporting. So the NDIA now has hospital liaison uh, staff uh, in every state and territory to work with the state system so that we can identify NDIA participants because we have to be notified by someone that people are in hospital and then so that we can start looking for uh, arrangements for them for post-hospitalisation you know, support. Um, and also, if we've got somebody in hospital who doesn't yet have a plan, you know, the state system has to tell us that they're there early enough so we can actually start working with them to uh, uh, assess them for a plan, but also for many people to actually find them a state uh, but, you know, public housing option if that's what they need. So again, it's a shared responsibility. And you know, we are making progress uh, in our discussions, but we haven't quite cracked it yet. Yeah, we're definitely doing it. So I said it was start, but it's it's all all parts of government need to be really focused on this. Absolutely. I'd like to turn to the issue of appeals now, Linda, and um, NDS appeals. Um, we have uh, recently saw some statistics around the NDIS appeals and I was very, very uh, shocked by how those numbers are going up and up. Um, we know that those appeal processes are very, very traumatic and also quite expensive. What will you do to address the growing number of people going to the courts so that they yeah, actually, George, this is an interesting question, and it's obviously very topical at the moment. Um, but I think the context of this is really important. Um, overall, the number, you know, remembering we've got half a million people now on the scheme, so the overall percentage of people who are going through to the uh, in, to the AAT appeals process is is still minuscule, and most of those people who do uh, go to the AAT, um, over, well over 90% of those uh, are settled before, as part of the early AAT process. And so it's important that people have 
uh, an avenue to appeal to the AAT. Uh, so I think the context on this is, is really important, George. Um, most most are, are settled. And again, it's a tiny fraction still, um, but you, because we've, the numbers have gone up to over half a million now, proportionally, um, you'd expect the numbers going to the AAT would, would correspondingly sort of increase. And the, the caseload has changed over time because there's not so many um, access cases now because, you know, we've got half a million people on the scheme, but it is evolving into uh, making appeals about uh, their, their package or some elements of their, their package itself. But again, uh, there's, there is funding available through DSS uh, to assist people uh, who are in financial hardship yeah. to, uh, to, to go through that process. And in fact, in the last budget, we've just put $100 million more uh, into that appeals process to make sure that people uh, on the scheme uh, do actually have access to funds for the very small percentage of people who actually do go through to an appeal. Well, let's turn to that then. On the issue of assistance and advocacy, yeah. uh, what I'm hearing on the ground is that advocacy services are quite overwhelmed by uh, work around NDS appeals. Do you think that we need to really uh, look at that and actually look at meeting that unmet need? Well, that's... Some of this actually sits within Anne Ruston's uh, policy portfolio. So we've been working on, on this issue together, which is why that we've increased by 88 million baseline funding for both the NDAP and the NDIS appeals program over the last three years. So we do know uh, that we do people do require support. And again, as I've said, we've also had the uh, $100 million uh, for the next four years in baseline funding for NDIS appeals in particular. So um, it is important that all participants have access and support where they need it to merit reviews in the system. And that's exactly what obviously what the AAT is. All right, let's tend to one of the final topics and that's choice and control. I'm very passionate about Person control, you'll know that, Linda. I do. What will you do to build the capacity of participants to exercise person control? Yep. It's something that uh, I've learnt a lot about in the last 12 months uh, in this job, and it's something that, again, I've been thinking very deeply about. And choice and control has always been and will always remain a key pillar or principle on which the NDIS operates. It has to, um, because it is all about um, empowering people uh, who are on the scheme to take you know, more control of their own lives and you know, how they live their lives and how they're supported to, to, live, to, live your, to live your life. So I think... Um, it's an important issue, not just for me uh, or for the minister of the day or the ministers across uh, all states and territories, but I think it's a really important discussion for us all to have. You know, what does choice and control actually mean? And choice and control might mean something a bit different for you uh, as it does for other participants. 
But one of the things I think that it's been very interesting for me to explore choice and control with people, for example, with a a cognitive or an intellectual disability. And are we we doing enough to ensure that they truly can exercise their own choice and control? Or do people have other people who are acting on their behalf, who are making decisions for them, that perhaps don't really reflect, you know, their own choice and control. So I think in a, in a practical sense, it's still a discussion we have to have uh, as, you know, as a nation. But I think it's also important uh, to, in terms of co-design. Now, I, <laughs> it's something that I know the first conversation, you know, you and I had uh, about, about co-design and I, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still a bit nervous to actually try and define, because every time I do, I seem to get into trouble because different people have different uh, perceptions of co-design. But for me, I, I, I really got that people who are impacted by the scheme, or people who have a, a stake in the scheme, must be consulted Look. on the future directions of the scheme. It's um, not consulted, right? Like this is this is what we're on about. We're we're saying that we make decisions together, and we do yeah. that because if we involve people from the outset, they're gonna make the decision a lot more informed and a lot higher quality. I, I think you've just made my point for me, George. <laughs> <laughs> so, but look, it, so in the in the acts uh, in the uh, amendments to the NDIS Act that have just gone through, um, we've enshrined in the legislation now uh, that co-design uh, has to be considered uh, when uh, making changes to the scheme and you know how it's governed. So it also uh, puts in legislation the need to have people with lived experience of disability uh, on the board. And as you know, I I appointed two amazing women with disability onto the board. So um, it's, it's a, it's a change in, it's sort of, it's a change in, in sort of direction. But again, I think coming back to your first question uh, about if I was the minister after the election, what I would like to do, I would like to keep working on uh, how do we how do we live and breathe the principles of co-design. Uh, we're doing that now with the IAC, I think, more effectively, and with the consultations the NDIA is now doing about SIL, about uh, early childhood uh, interventions, about SDA. That is all actually doing things in consultation and collaboration with the right stakeholders. Linda, this is uh, my last question. It's not hands now. Should I be scared? (laughs) Should I be scared, George? No, no, no. It's it's not hands to tell people why uh, why they need to look to you as our NDIS leader um, post the election. Why why should they vote for you? Well, George, that is a very, very good question. And I think that what I have brought to the portfolio 
and what I've tried to bring to the portfolio is a genuine spirit of collaboration and consultation, but also action, because there have been, you know, I've, as a minister, you were only a custodian of, of your portfolio for a particular, you know, for a slice of, of time. And I think over the last 12 months, you know, I listened, I heard, I acted on independent assessments, I've put in place a collaborative approach uh, on new participant-centred uh, assessment processes, again, to be co-designed with the IAC and the sector. Um, I've you know, had many meetings with the states and territories, I said six, and you know, we, are, we are collaborating. I've heard about SIL and you know, we've acted. I heard about Anne-Marie Smith and the circumstances, and I not only introduced legislation, I got that passed. I got the participant service guarantee and other important reforms for participants through the parliament. But that only happens is when you work together. I respect the sector, I re you know, people like yourselves who are very strong and passionate advocates, but we can only do things together. And I learnt that through um, the COVID vaccination process is that the reason we now have the highest uh, vaccination rates in the world for people with disability and particularly those on the NDIS is because I work together with the states and territories. I work together with Greg Hunt. I work together with the sector and took their advice on you know, what were some of the barriers were and how we could collectively work to, to deal with that. So, you know, funding is, funding is not an issue. Both sides have, have a, a, you know, committed to fully funding the NDIS. We've put $157 billion into doing that. But the real issue now is how do we make the scheme better and better? You know, we've had so many reviews. We know what we need to do. And I believe that over the last 12 months, I have demonstrated to the sector that I can work with the sector. I can work with states and territories. I worked with the opposition to get the legislation through. And, you know, none of us can do this together. But I fervently and passionately believe in this scheme. I think that it says so much about Australians that, you know, no other country has a scheme like it and that we are willing to provide that support to half a million Australians so that they can live, you know, a wonderfully ordinary life and a life of their choice. So it is not perfect, but it's, it's on its way to improving. And again, you know, just seeing and hearing the stories of so many peoples whose lives have been transformed. You know, I know it is a great scheme. This government knows that it's a great scheme. And, you know, if, if I am still the minister after the election, uh, I will certainly be continuing to work with everybody who has a stake in the scheme to improve it. And, you know, that's, that's what I offer, George. Linda, I can vouch for that you are a collaborator. I know you've always made yourself available to talk to me, and I thank you for that. And I wish you the best of luck on the 21st of May. Thank you very much, George. And can I just say I've so valued uh, your frank and fearless advice. 
um, but also your very constructive approach because ultimately identifying problems is really easy. Actually finding the solutions and then being able to implement them together, you know, that is the real knack of government, but also of, you know, people like yourselves, like yourself in how we work together to keep making it better. Thanks, Linda. Good night. Thanks, George. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary. Remember that this is just one of a series of episodes for the federal election. So make sure you check them all out, including our final analysis episode, which is a ripper. To be notified of future episodes, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. You can also follow me on Twitter at DrGeorgeTheClip. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.